Natural history is the history of creation and is, is driven by evolution. Today is time zero. And as a result, 13.7, 13.8 billion years ago, there was the Big Bang. The Earth formed about four, uh, four and a half billion years ago as a molten mass. And it took about a billion years to cool down enough to support a sea and an atmosphere, and then life could begin. Homo sapiens, uh, Homo sapiens started, well, a lot of talk about that, especially lately. 120, 150,000 years ago, although very recently there's been some research done that may indicate it was a lot longer ago than that. The incarnation was 2018 years ago. And we're making on this timeline, the zero is today. And so in the future, well, I can look forward to my death and immortality. So this, I think, would be a rough timeline for natural history. Oops, get organized here. We don't know what happens in the material world in the long run. Electrons and protons don't seem to wear out. So they have their own type of immortality, perhaps controlled by entropy. What then is the difficulty of thinking that a spiritual entity as natural and being immortal? These aspects are going to open up a lot of questions, so I will leave a good bit of time in this session for those. We are now talking about biological evolution. <clears throat> it has been called the physics of large molecules. This is usually called organic chemistry, which explains the activity of molecules in living organisms. In physical chemistry, the periodic table explains the basis of how atoms combine to form stable molecules. It involves the shells inhabited by orbiting electrons. The periodic table allows us to predict some of the general characteristics, such as reactivity, gaseous or solid. But, then, but when they combine with other atoms, the resulting characteristics are unpredictable. Consider just two examples, sodium chloride, and a combination of 45 atoms, C12H22O11. In the first example, sodium is an extremely active and soft metal. It has a single electron in its outer shell that is readily donated. Sodium spontaneously explodes in the presence of water. Chlorine is a poisonous gas and together, in a molecule, they form table salt. Stick a few hydrogen and oxygen atoms to carbon atoms, the black stuff in a lead pencil or charcoal, and you end up with table sugar. Atoms have a curious fact about size. The hydrogen atom, the simplest, 
There is only one electron orbiting the positive nucleus. If we scaled up the nucleus of the, to the size of a tennis ball, then the electron would be orbiting about three quarters of a mile away. And everything in between is empty space. It would be accurate to observe that the wooden stool that I'm sitting on is mostly empty space. In the, in the previous discussion, the theme, the underlying unifying accompaniment, our, time, our timeline, was time. In this discussion, it is a matter of scale and size, both small and large, and the potentialities that this brings with it. Previously, we dealt with light years, distance, and eons of time. Here, we will deal with microns, one millionth of a meter. A millimicron is one thousandth of a micron. A millimicron is to a meter as three seconds is to a century. The average size of a virus is about 60 millimicrons. So much for small things. Just as we have astronomically large numbers of stars and galaxies, so the number of atoms, molecules, and cells in a living organism is astronomical. DNA alone can contain 200 billion atoms. A cell, a basic unit of a living organism, is a stable and complex structure composed of an astronomically large number of atoms and molecules. First, a quick review. The first uh, precipitate of the Big Bang resulted in particles. These exhibit the basic properties of material existence, space, mass, gravitational field, electrical and magnetic fields, etc. A field is a region in space where a force can be detected. Everything in the universe is constructed of these basic entities and properties. They are like the simple few basic Lego blocks with which we can construct massive and intricate objects. And when complexity reaches the level of organic chemistry and living entities, the variety and potentiality explodes into a biosphere that engulfs the whole of the planet Earth. We must begin by recognizing the different levels of natu natural created atomic existence. We are reminded of this by Teilhard de Chardin, who pointed out that Atoms are more than just particles. Molecules are more than just atoms. Organs are more than just molecules. Organisms are more than just organs. And Homo sapiens is one natural level higher still. Each time we combine elements of a lower level, we end up with something more than just the sum of its parts. Atoms are stable units made from particles which give them unique characteristics in the combination. Molecules take on new characteristics not shown by the atoms alone. Examples, salt and sugar. 
They can be composed of from two to 200 billion atoms. Organs perform unique functions such as an eye or heart, often contributing to the complex configuration of many organ types. Organisms constitute individuals, functioning units of single living, single living beings ranging from single cells to multi-organed animals of extreme size. A cell can be composed of a hundred trillion atoms, and the human body contains the same number of cells. A cell as seen by an individual atom within it is like you and I looking at the Milky Way on a perfectly clear night, able to see the 100 billion stars in our galaxies and the 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Homo sapiens is at a different level of activity, such as self-knowledge, moral judgment, spiritual relationships with others, other members of the species, and we would add, a transcendent relationship with the Creator. The final characteristics of organisms are constrained or enabled by their complexity. The complexity level Levels range through atoms, molecules, organic molecules, virus, cells, components such as DNA, organs, and organisms. Walk into a chemistry stockroom where you can see in jars samples of every atom that exists, and you could not imagine a cell, mushroom, horse, or blue whale. Yet each of these living beings, as we call them, is nothing but, an, but the atoms you are looking at in the jars in increasing complexity and complex configuration. Note that I call them living beings and not creatures. Every one of them evolved naturally following the potential in all the material substance in those jars and were not ad hoc created or even assembled by God. There is no need for that kind of activity. We will work our way up to Homo sapiens and its natural level. Now we need, however, to agree on what it means to be alive. <clears throat> what are the characteristics of a living organism? What is the difference between a living object an inert collection of matter. Classically, it was said that a living being exhibits growth, repair, and reproduction. Virus and are an, import, an important factor in all living beings, and yet they are not alive. They don't grow, repair, or reproduce. They replicate using the material of a living cell and thus kill the cell. They simply do what atoms and molecules are able to do. So they are not alive. And since that is so, how can a viral disease be cured? Until their structure was understood and how they affected the cell, the only thing possible was to sustain the victim until the body's own immune system eliminated the disease. The Nobel Prize winner in 1946 
Wendell Stanley did much of the pioneering work in understanding virus. Here, we see the structure of the tobacco mosaic virus he worked on. More broadly, we could list organization, movement, internal and external, reproduction, and we must include death as the signs of a living thing. A living organism loses their vitality sooner or later, often before their time, as in an unwatered plant might suffer our neglect. Let's look more closely at these signs of life. Living beings are certainly organized, not just in a tidy pattern or pleasing symmetry, such as the snowflake. There is also great complexity, such as in the spirogyra, the single-celled plant we studied in high school biology. And there is a specialization of parts. A single cell has many parts, plasma membrane to hold it into a unit, cytoplasm, nucleus, ribosomes to build proteins using RNA, or in plants, chloroplasts, that green spiral which reduces carbon dioxide into carbon to form sugar and oxygen to release back into the atmosphere. Lucky for us. Life processes are dynamic. Life is a process as well as a structure. Using light energy to construct needed molecules, it is a nervous system for sensation and motor function, metabolism for transporting energy within the organism, hormonal communications, for example, adrenaline to alert the muscles. Life is always dynamic and not just physically. It is true that Planets and avalanches move, but they are not alive. They go where gravity dictates, and it is all external movement. Living organisms move internally as well as externally. Externally, animals walk, crawl, fly, or swim. Plant roots grow downward and stalks grow upward, obeying tropisms. Even in the single-celled paramecium, it is a celebration of activity, cilia beating in harmony to propel the organism through its waterly environment, the oral groove ingesting food molecules, and the cytoplasm carrying the nourishment throughout the internal cavity, all of which we can watch under a microscope. Living beings are irritable. They are aware of their surroundings. They sense things and respond to stimuli, the presence of food or threat detection. These can be primitive or complex. Living organisms can also control growth. There is a correct range of sizes for everything. Cancer is uncontrolled growth. Still, on a scale of living things, a cell can have a hundred trillion atoms and a brain can have a hundred billion nerve cells. Creationists would have God controlling these things down to this level and for each of us. <clears throat> At the cellular level, we are dealing with replacement of cells that die, and the frequency of this depends on the type of cells. Blood cells last about four months, while others seven or ten years. 
This sustains an organism beyond the life of the cells. Cells multiply by asexual division. DNA replicates and separates. Then the organism pinches to divide as this paramecium is beginning to do. This also regenerates and repairs organs. Organisms use sexual reproduction to generate new individuals. This whole process is so complex, but it, it all happens naturally through the natural potential of atoms in extremely complex configurations, which takes place with no external help or direction in spite of the concerns of the creationists. Finally, death can be just as difficult a question as evaluating life, but is certainly an essential property of anything alive. The physical signs of death are essential organs not functioning, no possibility of reasoning in humans. Then there are the gray areas, coma, brain dead, not to mention sleep. Death brings not reward and punishment, but the stabilizing of personal dignity bestowed by our identification with the Creator, acquired initially through our human nature and by free choice during our graced physical life and deepened relationships. It is an earned dignity. We all know the basic story of Darwin and how he concluded that all species have descended with the passage of time from common ancestors <coughs> and thus making unnecessary the ad hoc creation of them individually. He offered the term natural selection as a process. The term is derived from selective breeding, which was already in use by breeders by this time, and this was also taking place by itself in nature. <coughs> nature was selecting through survival of the fittest and the ability to adapt to environmental change. No one knew at the time just how this inheritance was happening until the development of genetics and the understanding of DNA. DNA is the full explanation. Before that, the study of inheritance, genetics, began with the monk Gregor Mendel in 1865. He was able to illustrate inheritance patterns by mathematical ratios. His work was not appreciated until the beginning of the 20th century. It wasn't until 1944 that DNA was recognized as the molecule that was responsible for inheritance. James Watson and Francis Crick determined the helical structure of DNA in 1953. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege of touring the archives of King's College and there saw the X-ray diffraction cameras and slides which Watson and Crick used to determine that DNA was a double helix. The DNA molecule contains about 200 billion atoms. It is composed of protein molecules in a double helix. This is just a small segment of DNA. DNA is like the musical score of a symphony, but the score is not the music. That requires musicians to follow it. DNA is the score for the life of an organism. 
Molecules obey organic chemistry. Obeying organic chemistry are the musicians. DNA is not life itself. It is extremely stable when it replicates itself in reproductive processes, which perpetuate characteristics for many generations. But chance mutations can make it possible to introduce characteristics that may increase survivability. In other words, allowing the organism to adapt to new circumstances. One aspect of evolution that is often overlooked is extremely long periods of time. We are amazed at the proliferation of species on Earth, but must remember that the evolution of life on Earth has had three and a half billion years to work its magic. Think of a million years passing. Now think of that happening 3,500 times and that's three and a half billion years. Over that period, and most probably starting in the nutrient-rich sea around hydrothermal vents, places where hot mineral-rich water was flowing from the sea bottom, the first bacteria probably formed. <clears throat> but once life started, there was no stopping it. No life form can remain static and is so and so evolved until they had a biosphere engulfing the whole earth, sea, land, and atmosphere. Eventually there evolved cyanobacteria forming stalatomites, which can still be seen today in Heimland Pool in Australia. These had the capacity to use the energy of sunlight to break down carbon dioxide using carbon and releasing free oxygen, which charged the seawater and then escaped into the atmosphere and eventually made it habitable. Life could now move onto dry land and eventually, as long as 150,000 years ago, Homo sapiens arrived. Now comes the crucial part. We have said that we are one natural level higher than the rest of the biosphere. Traditionally, it was concluded that there is only one distinct characteristic that marks the human being, the presence of a spiritual soul, created at the moment of conception, which makes the whole organism an individual person who can ultimately function independently of all the physical organs and is dependent on and related to the Creator. Notice I keep attributing the word natural to everything about Homo sapiens. If we, are not, if we do not recognize this, we, are descend, we will descend into confusing and distracting dualism. Body, soul, physical, spiritual, saved, damned, natural, disordered. We will also be forced into creationism. We must take seriously all the implications of the idea of one creative act. It happened only once. But this does not detract from anything, anything from our notion of spirituality or a relationship with God. The natural characteristics of the human level are recognized as transcendence 
which is the possession of characteristics and faculties which were not previously seen in physical properties. This is the final step in that more than list of Tyards, atoms more than mo mo particles, molecules more than, etc. We become aware of these characteristics and faculties through human experience. While they may be difficult to understand and even non-intuitive, that does not make them unreal or unnatural. Physical science has discovered many characteristics of created stuff that are non-intuitive and hard to get our imagination around, like relativity, quantum, and their implications. One key transcendent capacity of Homo sapiens is love. While we may recognize similarities of love in the behavior of such as kin recognition and loyalty in certain developed animals, we are maintaining here that there is a difference of kind and not degree in Homo sapiens. Little wonder that the primary message of Jesus is love. An essential point here is that transcendence does not lead to dualism, having a transcendent part and a physical part. There is only one essence to humankind, and it occurs naturally as a product of evolution. It is inherent in created material. The human essence is personhood or individuality. It arises from a complex configuration of the created stuff in the universe and occupies place, location, here on earth. I am here, you are there. We intuitively recognize individuality with its companion property, responsibility. If everything about us is only physical, material, then death should have no concern for us. Without our living body, there, is, there are no longer any desires or cravings to fulfill, and the person we were no longer exists. Experience tells us that relationships between individuals go beyond kinship and sexual attraction. They involve responsibility and the recognition of human rights. The human capacity to have experience, and enjoy relationships is not just between ourselves and other human persons, but with the Creator as well. We sense this not only because we experience cravings for such a relationship, and in nature, where there is a craving, there is something to satisfy it. We sense it through our intuition, through our intellectual attempts to dis discover the purpose of our human capacities. It is the incarnation which reveals to us the reality of this relationship with the Creator. There is more at stake than evolutionary survival of the species. We are dealing with love as a selfless act which fulfills not only our own self, but that of other individuals and even a society at large. The Creator is not involved in the stable attraction which holds molecules or atoms together, nor in the mothering instinct of animals. But what of love between two persons or an individual with God?
This may not be just a difference of degree, but kind. And what function would a temporary love of this kind serve? Our theology speaks of this in terms of grace. Grace becomes like a metabolism, transporting spiritual energy of the Creator throughout our individuality, just as our physical metabolism provides physical energy and nourishment for the whole body. And finally, humanity is creative. We can detect, we, we can direct evolution, social, economic, governmental, and spiritual. Human creativity indicates an entity or activity which is not completely physical. Human creativity is capable of producing art, works involving color, musical sound, and the movements of dance, a combination of meanings and sound in literature and poetry. It can be useful in solving problems and designing the structures of civil government. The, the physical reactions to in, intellectual awareness and, excuse me, the physical reactions to intellectual awareness, such as tears and laughter, are driven by associations and possession and processes that have more than just the hallmarks of being physical. They fail, however, to be explained by the best minds. And as if in desperation, we attribute the source of these traits to a non-physical entity, which is the person, the psyche, whatever that is, the soul. It is humankind that marvels at the variety of color and flowers, or not bees. It is, the, it is persons and not chimpanzees who write poetry about their social awareness. It is creative people who compose music to express and evoke human feelings that are aroused by these connections and provide nourishment beyond the physical needs to survive. These activities we attribute to the human soul. The human soul that originates naturally is no less spiritual, no less grace-filled. Tyard was able to take the long view. He knew that even his theory of humanity's relationships to the Creator had to extend back to the first, the original human beings, and the way they populated the world. Even our moral principles must be adaptable to adjust and adjust, or adjustable to accommodate earliest humanity. He would have rejoiced at today's understanding of human world migration that is derived today through gene matching. What was the spiritual life and goal of the first Homo sapiens? It must have been the same as every human person today and limited only by the possible range of human experience at the time. Unfortunately, our usual focus or range of vision is limited to the last 4,000 years, as was our timeline. While we have no recorded account of the humanity of 100,000 years ago, except through archaeology, they must have been the same type of living being and possessed all the faculties, physical, intellectual, 
and moral that we possess. Otherwise, they were not human. This is necessary since we traditionally attribute the first sin to the first human. We don't know what the, the act was supposed to involve, but they had to be morally responsible beings. Our concept and scenario of salvation must also fit these hundreds of thousands of years of human existence. Otherwise, God created a vast majority of human population as throwaway generations. We benefit from seeing the universe as that triple abyss containing generations. Our material side is what confuses us. Tyard put it in this way in his heart, The Heart of Matter. <clears throat> Quote, When we examine matter and think that it is so close as to be touching us, we find in fact that our eyes are traveling over and seeing as one blur an immensely thick layer of existence. They are lost in the infinite infinite that lies behind them, behind us. Our empirical knowledge of it and our instinct, such as we, since we cannot understand it, causes us ultimately to exalt and vilify. We say that it is eternal, at least indestructible, stable, unified, powerful, overflowing with life. But then we add that it is evil also, maleficent, distressful, mechanical, dead, subject to decay." Close quote. What liberates us from this last appraisal is the revelation contained in the Incarnation and the Resurrection. That spiritual functionality which began through the ultimate and liberating complexity of human generations continues after the dissolution of that physical structure. In other words, spiritual immortality. This is taking the long view, even of the material substance that forms and informs us in this life. Just as we can talk about dark matter because we see the gravitational effect of its presence, for example, holding galaxies together, but cannot see the dark matter itself, so we can see the effects of the spiritual presence in the human person, but cannot detect the entity itself and we call it the soul. Tyard goes so far as to propose that, quote, however complete and autonomous a spiritual soul may be, it cannot exist in the world in isolation. It is not made ever to subsist separately. This certainly reminds us of the mystical body of Christ. One final word about creationism. What is the connection between the creative Big Bang and the Creator's activity ever since? And why did the Creator wait for more than 100,000 years after the original sin to give us a remedy? The Genesis myth is possible as God can do, a God can do what a God wants to do, but the myth is unnecessary. It violates Occam's razor and Descartes' seventh principle, which says that entities should not be multiplied unnecessarily, which requires 
that the simplest of competing theories is to be preferred over the more complex. The myth is a distraction allowing critics to focus on, the, on accusing believers of wishful thinking and searching for what it, we would like to exist rather than what does exist. It is out of character for a God. God is not playing with the universe and there can be no clash between good science and good theology. Finally, creationism is not science. It is a groping for possibilities which stroke our need for God to be constantly and intimately involved in the minutiae of daily human existence, with little or no evidence that it is a reality, only a possibility since God can do just about anything. If for us creationism extends to all of what we can see as created, as Genesis implies, then where does it stop? Is it at the molecular level, DNA, for example, or the electrical firing of synapses in the brain to guide our thoughts? Is God manipulating these as well? If we look closely, we may find a lot of creationism in our terminology. A simple example. We may have told someone, use your God-given talents. This would require that God manipulate our DNA at some point. This would give those who do not have the talent to suspect that they have been cheated by God, <clears throat> who shows favoritism. In summary, we have considered the event of creation and how the nature of what was brought into existence was so superabundant in potential that as the conditions became right, it naturally evolved into every type of material stuff, the building blocks of the universe. Pope Francis explained, explained it this way in Laudato Si, quote, it is as if the, fish, the, the shipbuilder were able to give timbers the wherewithal to make themselves to take the form of a ship. As molecules grew in size, they, they enabled the unforeseen and unimaginable potentialities they already possessed. At what, in creational terms, was a short time ago, three and a half billion years, on Earth, organic molecules evolved into an autonomous configuration we call living cells, capable of repl rep replicating themselves. This released an explosion of reproductive activity which resulted in a biosphere enveloping the earth. A creational instant ago, 150,000 years, another unforeseen and unimaginable event evolved, Homo sapiens, and generated a noosphere. With this background, we are now ready to consider the final question, what to think of original sin. <laughs>